Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our lesson, let's take a few moments of silent prayer uh, so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study uh, the word. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, which means simply to name or admit, to acknowledge, uh, to admit to the Lord uh, our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then we will, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to go to for guidance and instruction, that there is no area of life that is left outside of the purview of your word, that your word gives us a framework for understanding all the issues of life. One of the most significant issues that we understand is that of the angelic conflict, that from time, um, from eternity past, before time began, there was a rebellion among the angelic hosts, and that everything related to human history is ultimately related to the resolution of that rebellion. And to understand the nature of that rebellion enables us to understand to some degree uh, why things are the way they are and why human history goes the way it does. And today as we look at this one particular passage in Jude, we will get a glimpse into one vital aspect of that angelic conflict. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see their significance for our thinking and understanding the details of our lives today and in the future. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jude chapter 6. We're continuing our study in Jude, and I want to remind you that Jude sets forth his purpose in the third verse. In the third verse, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... By that he meant that he, his original intent was to write to them on some theme related to soteriology. Soteriology is the study of the things related to our soter, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was his original intent. But then, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the superintending factor of God the Holy Spirit, he uh, was led to write in a on, about a different topic, about the topic related to the uh, false teachers who had now come into this congregation, and he is warning them about them. And part of his warning, part of his challenge, is to remind those sitting in the pew that there is definitely judgment in the plan of God for those who are disobedient to him. Now, I want to stress that again because the examples that he uses are not going to be examples that that relate to, let's say, a person's individual eternal destiny. There are some people who may come to Jude and look at this and want to interpret Jude in light of unsaved versus saved, that is, those who are justified and those who aren't. But that's not the context in the and the focus of his, of his illustrations. The illustrations relate to those that God judges, those who are disobedient to him. And he's going to give these examples of God's judgment. The first example we looked at last time in verse 5, judgment upon the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, that Exodus generation was disobedient to God. Even Moses was disobedient at one point, and for these acts of disobedience, that generation was not allowed to uh, enjoy the blessings of the promised land. 
And so God brought judgment upon them. They died in the wilderness before they could enter the land. So when we read that verse, I pointed out that when uh, Jude wrote, he said, I wanted to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, that is not a uh, a technical term for the theological doctrine of eternal salvation. It is related to physical deliverance, the redemption of the people from slavery in Egypt, and then afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. That is physical death, the sin unto death for that generation. They died in the wilderness. It's not talking about eternal condemnation in that verse. It is talking about the fact that they did, for example, at Kadesh Barnea, when the ten or the twelve spies were sent into the land, uh, ten of them came back saying that there are too many people, there are giants in the land, and there's fortified cities, we can't defeat them. And so for that, God said, none of this unbelieving generation will enter into the land except for the two who said, sure, we can do it because God's given us the victory, and that was Caleb and Joshua. And so those who were destroyed, this is not eternal destruction. This is not eternal judgment because they, it illustrates the fact that there's accountability in this universe because it is God's universe. And God is going to bring judgment upon those who disobey him. Now, the second example has to do with a group of angels who disobeyed God. And these angels disobeyed God in a certain way, and then they were judged. And we see at the at the uh, last part of that verse that they're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That judgment is future. So the focus here is that they're held now under these eternal uh, chains of darkness. So it's talking about present-time judgment as a result of a past disobedience. None of this has anything to do with the doctrine of individual salvation because angels aren't saved in that sense, not like human beings are. They don't have an option in trusting God or trusting Christ as Savior. They had some option in terms of trusting God in eternity past. Uh, What that was, we don't know, and we should not speculate on it, although I know that there are some who do. And the scripture says that we are to avoid that kind of speculation. So this is an important verse, and it's important because it helps us understand a somewhat uh, enigmatic episode in the Old Testament. And there are questions that uh, a lot of people have about this episode in the Old Testament and about the interpretation that is most obvious and most clear and the interpretation that uh, that I've always taught on that on that event that is the invasion of the human race by a group of fallen angels and there are many questions that people ask well how can angels really uh, procreate with human beings uh, how does that happen how can immaterial beings uh, uh, take on material flesh and I don't know the answer to that I know that the Bible says they can, so I have to trust that, but that doesn't mean I have, I can understand all of the, uh, uh, biophysical mechanics of this, uh, kind of operation. But it, it can happen, and it did happen, and what we have to do is understand, uh, the clarity of of uh, other passages, complementary passages to the Genesis 6 passage. And it's very clear from these passages we're going to look at in this lesson, Jude 6 and 7, as well as passages in both Second Peter and First Peter, that refer back to this episode, that it helps us to see that even though we can't answer some of the questions, and even though it seems a little bit uh, odd or unusual, uh, we're left with the fact that this can, is the only really defensible, uh, defensible interpretation of the Genesis 6 episode. So let's begin by just understanding what is going on in Jude 6. We read in the verse that there were angels who did not keep their own domain, uh, but abandoned their proper abode, He, that is a reference to God, he has kept in eternal bonds. That is the main thought of this passage because it's illustrating God's certain judgment on those creatures who are disobedient. God's certain judgment on creatures who are disobedient. So he kept these disobedient angels in eternal bonds under darkness 
for the judgment, see that's indicating a future time, for the future judgment of the great day. And then verse 7 gives us even more information just as, so it shows a comparison between what these angels did and what it meant to not keep their own domain and what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So the focus is on punishment. So we're going to get into this now. Uh, Jude 6, the first key word that we should look at is this word domain. Domain. Um, they did not keep the domain. This is a translation of the Greek word arche, and it's translated in the lexicon, such as uh, Bauer, uh, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, your primary Greek uh, lexicon for Koine Greek, that it means domain or sphere of influence or power. An arche has to do with that which is first in order. So you have uh, this word is also used in a very well-known verse, uh, J- John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. And the Greek phrase there is in arche, in the beginning. So arche is a word that means first in order in a sequence of events, and it refers to that which is uh, their uh, uh, individual sphere of influence or power, and that's how it's used here. So... It talks about angels, and remember the term angel, angelos in the Greek, is a reference to uh, their primary function. The word angelos means a messenger. It's used of human messengers. It's also used of these uh, creatures, these sentient beings that are basically immaterial in their makeup that can be invisible to human beings who were the first order of sentient or intelligent creatures that God created before uh, he created the human race. And so these angels are then subdivided into two classifications. There are uh, the elect or holy angels. These are the angels that stayed loyal to God in the uh, time of the angelic rebellion when the highest of all the angels named uh, Lucifer uh, uh, gave in to his arrogance and became self-absorbed and asserted his desire to uh, be higher than God and to take for himself all of the all of the worship of God. And so that rebellion took place, and uh, approximately one-third of the angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion. Lucifer was later named Shatan or Satan, Satan or Satan, which is a name for uh, him as the adversary or the accuser of God. So this re- revolt took place, I believe, between uh, Genesis 1-1, the original creation of the universe, and Genesis 1-2, which depicts the universe in some state of judgment and chaos. Then God rebuilt and recreated uh, the universe for the habitation of man, because man was going was created in order to uh, resolve the angelic conflict. What we mean by that is that the that the human race was going to demonstrate the justice of God's decision in uh, punishing Lucifer and the angels that followed him with eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And now the reason for that is because. Uh, the, the the sin of disobeying God, the sin of thinking that you can make life work apart from God, is so horrible, so egregious, so terrible in its consequences that it is worthy of such a horrible punishment. And if we just think about it a little bit, the original sin in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam ate the fruit, whatever that was, when he took the bite out of that fruit, that plunged the human race into sin. And it plunged, had the consequent effect of plunging the entire universe into sin so that everything becomes impacted by the corruption of sin. Prior to Adam biting off a chunk of that fruit, you have, uh, you did not have any, uh, sin. You didn't have any suffering. You didn't have any, um, 
anything going on that was uh, a horrible. There was no famine. There was no drought. There was no pestilence. There was no violence. Uh, everything was absolutely perfect. But as a result of uh, as a result of of Adam's sin, the entire universe is plunged into corruption, and so all of the horrible things that we've seen in history, wars, uh, horrible evil done by uh, human beings to other human beings, all of these terrible things, all of the problems we have meteorologically, uh, storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, ice storms, the frozen poles, all of these things are the consequence of sin. And all the people who have suffered uh, untold suffering down through the ages, all this is a result of rebellion against God. And so what God is demonstrating in human history is the consequence of an act, no matter how innocent it may appear, no matter how inconsequential it might be. Any act, no matter how minor or apparently insignificant it might be, that is uh, independent of God's will that goes against God's will, that's the creature asserting his independence from God uh, brings about such horrible consequences that the punishment of eternal condemnation, the lake of fire, fits the crime. And so this is being demonstrated in history. Now, when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, and he was plunged into sin, as part of the, con- uh, the legal punishment for that is he died spiritually. But God in his grace provided a solution to that spiritual death, and it is uh, indicated in a rather uh, uh, broad form in Genesis 3.15 when God addressed the consequences of sin in the life of, the, of, of Eve. He said that, uh, that she would give birth to the seed, and her seed, a future generation, her seed would destroy the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent would bite the seed of the woman on the heel, which is uh, would still be a fatal wound, but it is not the kind of a destructive wound that we have where the seed of the woman, uh, which refers eventually to Jesus Christ, crushes the head of the serpent. And so that sets up God's plan of redemption and salvation from the penalty of sin, demonstrating that he is a loving and gracious God and that Satan's charge that no loving or gracious God would ever send his creatures to the lake of fire is completely false and fraudulent. So once God announced his plan via the seed, then something else happened. Satan understood that he had to destroy the nature of the seed, the human nature of the seed, in order to prevent the coming of this promised Savior. And so uh, that set up various attacks against the human race. The, the first uh, of these great attacks against the human race, of course, was Satan's temptation of Eve in the garden. The last or the third attack, there are three major attacks. The last of these attacks occurs during the tribulation period. Uh, that is within history until the Messiah comes. There is actually a fourth attack, which is the Gog and Magog revolution at the end of the millennial kingdom. But the third attack is an attack that uh, takes place, uh, uh, multiple attacks that take place during the tribulation uh, period. This involves a demon assault army that currently is imprisoned uh, in the abyss under the command of one called a uh, demon called Abaddon or Apollyon in the Greek, and that is spelled out in Gen- I mean excuse me in Revelation chapter nine verses one through twelve. That's the uh, fifth uh, trumpet judgment. Then the sixth trumpet judgment involves a second demonic assault army that is currently uh, invisible and held in reserve under the Euphrates River. This is spelled out in Revelation chapter 9, verses 12 through 21. And then there's a third uh, army of demons which are currently stationed in heaven under the command of Satan, and this is spelled out in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17. Now, between the attack at the Garden of Eden and the future attack on the human race, in the tribulation period, there was a major assault against the human race, and this took place in the ancient world during the time of Noah. 
And that is the reference in Jude 6, and we'll show you how we get there. So these are angels in this verse who did not keep their original sphere of influence or their original place of power. God had created all of the angels to be heavenly creatures, to serve him in the heavens, and yet this was a group that not only uh, left that position and followed Satan, but then they left the domain of heaven in order to enter into human histories to seduce a uh, human wives uh, and take human wives and to seduce human women in order to uh, infiltrate and destroy uh, the human gene pool. So this is the first key word is they left their original domain. Um, they did not uh, keep their, but uh, abandoned their uh, proper abode. Now, problem with this slide is that arrow should go to abode and not domain. The word abode is the word oiketerion, which refers to a habitation or dwelling place. So they didn't keep their original station or purpose, which had to do with serving God in heaven, and they abandoned their proper abode or dwelling place. That is, they left heaven and went to the earth. So this tells us two things about this group of angels. They violated their original purpose or mission as having been created to serve God, and that would be their identification with Lucifer in his rebellion. And then they did a second thing, and that is they left heaven and entered into earth. So these two words, they left their domain and they left their proper uh, proper abode. And so this tells us about a certain group of angels. So they did not keep their proper domain. They left their own abode. And then we're told that he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, in everlasting chains under darkness. And this means that they are under condemnation, that they are in a place of... Um, of complete and absolute uh, darkness, and that these chains are not going to be, uh, uh, they're not going to be released from these chains. So they are imprisoned right now for a future judgment, which is called the judgment of the great day. And this is, refers to the future time at the end of the seven-year tribulation, after Jesus returns to save Israel from the armies of the Antichrist and Satan and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation period. The Antichrist, the false prophet, are sent to the lake of fire. Satan is confined for a thousand years in the abyss, and I believe it is at that time that the fallen angels are judged also and sent to uh, the lake of fire. So we learn from this verse, it's a group of angels who left heaven or left their original position in serving God, rather. They left heaven, and now they are confined under eternal darkness. So this is a subset of the demons. Not all demons are, are free to roam about the earth. There are these three groups, two of which I just mentioned, that are currently restricted. Those who are chain, uh, confined and imprisoned in chains of darkness, those that are the uh, Rev, uh, Revelation chapter 9 uh, demons who are in the abyss under the command of uh, Apollyon, and then the group of 200 million demons that are part of the sixth trumpet judgment that are confined under the river Euphrates. So there are actually four groups of demons, three that are confined and one that is currently serving uh, Lucifer uh, in heaven. But as we look at this verse, we come to the next verse, Jude 7, which has a comparative at the beginning, telling us that there's something uh, common between the second example of judgment, that is, these angels who are judged and imprisoned, and this the judgment of God upon two of the five cities of the plains, actually all the five cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their sexual perversion. Now, as we look at this passage, it's really interesting to to pay attention to the details of this this passage. It says, like Sodom and Gomorrah at the beginning. So there's a comparison, uh, and the comparison is the kind of sin 
that occurred among the angels are, is the same thing that occurred among those in Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to notice it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Now, the Greek word for cities is a feminine noun. It's a feminine noun. And so the cities is going to be followed by uh, two pronouns that come up, them and they. And these pronouns that I've highlighted in red on the chart are feminine plural pronouns. Now, for a pronoun, to identify the referent of a pronoun, the uh, original noun has to, I mean, the pronoun has to agree with the original noun according to uh, gender and number. So cities is feminine plural. So the, any pronoun that refers back to cities has to be a feminine plural. Well, the, the first them this, the they are feminine plural pronouns, so they refer to cities. But the next uh, pronoun that is translated these is a masculine plural, and therefore it does not refer back to the cities. It must refer to a plural masculine noun, where the only previous plural masculine noun is in verse 6, the angels. The angelos is a masculine noun, and in its plural, angeloi, which we have here in Jude 6, it is the only appropriate uh, referent to this masculine plural pronoun in verse 7. So there's a comparison made between the perversion of the cities of the plains, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, that is around Sodom and Gomorrah, since they, that is those cities around them, those cities in the same way as these, these, not these cities, not these Sodom and Gomorrah, but these angels. So the angelic rebellion uh, of sexual immorality uh, that this references is some, an event that precedes the event of of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is covered in Genesis chapter 19. So this has to be referring to some event among the angels that is prior to Genesis 19. Then it describes the kind of sin, and it says that uh, these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them imitated the angels and they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality, that men lusted after other men, women after other after women, and so you had homosexuality and lesbianism rampant in the cities of the plain. There was pure uh, licentiousness, and so they were they were not. Uh, following the restrictions that God placed upon human beings where sexual relations were to be, be between members of the opposite sex and married members of the opposite sex. So the comparison is that just as Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual relations with those uh, for whom they should not have or with whom they should not have sexual relations, the angels had sexual relations with those they were not to have sexual relationships with. And so that only fits one scenario uh, prior to Genesis chapter 19. So Jude 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them came under divine judgment. So the writer of Jude is saying that he's reminding them that God judges disobedient creatures. He judged the Israelites who were disobedient when they came out of Egypt and didn't trust God in going into the promised land. God brought judgment upon this group of angels who disobeyed him in at some time in eternity past, and left their own abode, and then became uh, involved with human beings, and then Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual perversion at Sodom and Gomorrah. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these gave themselves over to uh, sexual immorality and went after strange flesh, they suffered the vengeance, or actually it should be translated the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the eternal fire here is a reference to 
the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in time, in history. And that is the fire of God that came down from heaven, the fire and brimstone that came down and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Eternal fire here is not a reference to the eternal fire of the lake of fire. That comes later. Uh, That is a judgment related to salvation. But in each of these cases, we're focusing on judgment that comes upon a disobedient group at the time of their disobedience. The Israelites are punished when they're coming out of, of Egypt, and they refuse to trust God to provide victory for them in the promised land. The fallen angels here that enter into human history in Genesis 6, as we'll see in a little bit, uh, are punished at that time and put into these everlasting chains of darkness. The focus of the judgment is on that judgment, putting them into everlasting uh, chains of darkness, not the future judgment of the great day. And Sodom and Gomorrah judgment, therefore, to fit the, the pattern that he set up, this would relate to the judgment uh, when God destroyed the cities of the plains through the fire and brimstone coming from heaven in um, uh, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 19. Just a note on uh, this this event is that uh, every now and then there are uh, some, some odd things that come out via the Internet on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, or sometimes it has to do with the location of the, um, uh, the location of the uh, place where the uh, Israelites crossed over uh, the Red Sea. Uh, many of these are not something you should pay attention to. It's in the same class as just recently they're saying that about somebody who's come out and said that he believes that there actually was a flood at Noah's time and that we can find evidence of it in the Black Sea. Well, if you really understand the guy's position, he believes in a local flood. He believes that he doesn't believe in a lot of different things that the Bible says happened. And so he's not really uh, validating the biblical flood. Same thing with these other positions. They, they're really not based in, in uh, solid fact. But there has been a discovery uh, along the west side of the, uh, uh, of the Dead Sea, excuse me, the east side of the Dead Sea, which does fit all of the information in the Scripture uh, related to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, some of these other things that have come up recently really are not substantiated by credible, conservative, Bible-believing uh, archaeologists. So what we learn here is that you have a group of angels that leave their original position, i.e., as servants of God. Then they leave their original abode, which is heaven, to go to the earth, and they commit a sin that is comparable to the sexual sin uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they are having sexual relations with creatures that they're not, with whom they're not supposed to have uh, sexual relations. Now, there are a couple of other passages in the New Testament that give us some clarity on this, and they're found in the epistles of Peter. Remember, Second Peter is written to the same group of people as Jude. Peter wrote much earlier, warning them of the coming of certain false teachers. Jude is writing at the time that they have shown up and telling them, okay, they're here now. This is what you need to do. So there are a lot of parallels between Second Peter and Jude. Turn back just a few pages. You've got to go past the three Johannine epistles to Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 2, and Second Peter chapter 2 describes these false teachers that will be coming. It starts in the first verse. Let's just look at that a minute. There were also false prophets among the people. That's referring back to false prophets among the Israelites. Even as there will be future tense, see this is warning of a future event that will come upon those uh, that church he's writing to, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on uh, themselves swift destruction. So it's talking, again, about a judgment context on a group of future false teachers. And then Peter says, many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth was blasphemed. Because of these false teachers, the way of truth, or Bible doctrine, was blasphemed. 
Verse 3 says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. They'll promise riches and money and success and all of these things, sort of like the prosperity gospel we have today. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Again, Peter saying the same thing Jude will say is, even though it may look like God delays, there is judgment that will come. God judges disobedient creatures. And he gives an example, and he gives the same, an example related to the same event that Jude references in Jude 6. In verse 4, uh, Peter says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and this is a first-class condition indicating the ver- truth or veracity of this first statement, God did not spare those angels. And so he's saying, you could almost translate it since, uh, for since God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now, the word hell here is really shouldn't be translated hell. It should be translated Hades. Hades is a place that uh, uh, of confinement for uh, the dead, generally. In the Old Testament, uh, Hades was comprised of two basic compartments, according to Luke 16, with the episode with Lazarus and the rich man. There were two compartments. There was the compartment of... Uh, of torments, and there was a compartment related to paradise. Well, after Christ rose from the dead, he took those who were in paradise, that would be Old Testament saints, and he took them to heaven. So we're left with uh, just the one compartment for humans of torments, but there's another compartment, and that is the place of darkness where these uh, fallen angels are confined. And so Peter goes to this same event, and he says, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, in other words, if God is going to judge them for their sin, God is going to judge these false teachers for their sin. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Hades and delivered them into chains of darkness. And the terminology here is uh, very similar to that in Jude. They are in a deep darkness that is so dark they can't see anything. There's no light that penetrates this whatsoever, and they are bound or imprisoned uh, in these chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So there are really two, two punishments here. They're in a holding cell, if we use a modern analogy. They're, they're in a holding cell until they are eventually taken to the place of punishment. See, the, 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 the sentence has already been pronounced. So it might be comparable to a situation today where you have a, crime, a criminal commit a crime. Uh, he goes on trial. He's found guilty. He's put in a holding cell in the county jail until they can eventually transfer him or to uh, prison. However, in this setup, it doesn't quite fit that analogy because there's going to be another pronouncement of judgment uh, between their present confinement and future confinement. But the principle is that there's this group of angels who sinned in the past, and they are now confined in darkness. So this fits the same, he's saying the exact same thing that Jude says. But he goes on to give additional information which helps us to locate these angels and their sin in history. And he gets, as the second example of judgment that Peter gives, he says, and God did not spare the ancient world. So there's a connection between the sin of the angels in verse 4 and the judgment of God upon the ancient world at the time of the Noahic flood. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. So previously, as we looked at the uh, Jude account, I pointed out that what we learned from that account is that the rebellion of the angels uh, that are talked about here occurred prior to Genesis 19. This tells us that this sin of the angels occurs before uh, the, the flood began at the time of Noah and the preservation of Noah and his family. So this means it has to happen somewhere between Genesis uh, 3 and Genesis 6, 
about the middle of the of the chapter about Genesis six eighteen. So it has to occur sometime within that event. So verse three goes on to say, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. With seven others, eight total were saved, Noah and his wife, three sons, their three wives, total of eight, when God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, see, this is a use of the word ungodly in a context similar to Jude, where ungodly can only refer to unbelievers. So the term ungodly is uh, not a term that technically refers to believers, but refers to unbelievers or the acts of that are consistent with being an unbeliever. And then in first Peter, I mean second Peter going on to the sixth verse, he says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live uh, ungodly. So we see another example coming from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so these are three examples uh, of, of judgment. Now, First Peter tells us even more about this event, so turn back a couple of more pages to the third chapter of First Peter, the third chapter of First Peter. Now, this is a chapter that begins talking about different relationships uh, within the family, wives and husbands, and then as it c- continues through the chapter, Peter talks about suffering and the importance of suffering even for righteousness' sake. Uh, and that means that, that even when we do right, sometimes we will suffer because we're living in the devil's world. So in verse 15, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or a rational answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who devile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now he's going to give an example of Christ who was perfect, who suffered for doing good, not for doing evil. So that's the focus of our passage and the context of our passage in verse 18, where Peter says, For Christ also died for sins uh, once for all. He died as a substitute for mankind, paid the penalty for sin. The just, Jesus was perfect. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to suffer. But there is, he is the ultimate example of, uh, the, uh, of unjust suffering. He died the just for the unjust for the purpose that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, that's the beginning of the thought. Now, then what Peter says is that there's something that happened with Christ after he died physically on the cross. He's put to death in the flesh. The body is buried in the grave but the immaterial part of man, uh, of Christ, his soul and his spirit together, uh, go in verse 19 and make a proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So in some sort of, uh, of um, intermediate body, not a physical body, but an immaterial body. Now, how do we know there's an immaterial body? Well, one example is the event I referred to a minute ago in Luke 16, talking about Lazarus and the rich man, when Lazarus is sent to paradise, the rich man to torments, uh, the rich man looks across the, uh, the, the uh, great gulf that separates torments from paradise, and it, the scripture says that the rich man is, is burning in pain, so it's a fiery punishment. And he begs Abraham, who is in charge of the Old Testament saints, he begs Abraham to let uh, Lazarus come and dip his finger. He's dead. How does he have a finger? And touch it to the uh, rich man's tongue. He's dead. How does he have a tongue? The only way to explain that is that there's some sort of immaterial trans- transitional body between the physical body and our future body, either the resurrection body of the believer in heaven or the body that the 
unbeliever receives that is capable of enduring the eternal torments of the lake of fire. So Jesus goes in a, in probably an intermediate body to make proclamation. He has to have some sort of immaterial body to have a mouth to make proclamation, uh, to make proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Well, who in the world are these spirits now in prison? Well, this is this word spirit or pneuma in the Greek is a word commonly used for the angels. And these angels are uh, further defined in the next verse, in verse 20. These are the spirits or the angels who formerly or previously, so this would be sometime before Christ, so anytime, this was just put at any time in the Old Testament period, who formerly were disobedient. So what we learn here is uh, this is referring to a class of, of angels that were disobedient in the past. Well, that could be either fallen angels as a whole or a subset of the fallen angels. Now, what we've learned already is that in Jude, we're told that there, uh, that group was not only left their original station in life serving God, but that they did something in addition to that, and they left their abode in heaven and went into human history. So that group is a subset, or a smaller subset of the whole group of fallen angels. That was also defined in Second, in Second Peter, and um, so they are uh, disobedient, and they're. Uh, placed in this prison. Now, in the previous passages, that prison was defined as eternal darkness. It's interesting that the Greek word used in both of those places isn't the normal word for darkness, but is a is a word that is uh, references a more profound, gloomy, uh, deep darkness. It's associated in Greek literature with with depression and gloom and and misery. So that's the nature of their. Uh, of their punishment. So they are identified as once being disobedient. And now we're told specifically when that occurred, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So the passage in Second Peter uh, 2 told us that this was just had to be before the flood, but it's at near the flood. It's in proximity. It's just prior to the flood, according to 3.20, in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So it makes it clear from comparing these passages that this group of angels had a sin that was sexual in nature, that it occurred uh, during Noah's lifetime, and that it is that sin that is the cause of their judgment and their being locked down in this gloomy, depressing, uh, deep, profound darkness until they are brought before a final judgment and sent to the lake of fire. Now, there's only one event this could possibly describe uh, in the Old Testament, and that is in Genesis chapter 6. As I pointed out earlier, it has to occur uh, sometime before Genesis 6, um, 6.13, which is when Noah gets uh, these instructions uh, to build the ark. Actually, it has to occur sometime before Genesis, uh, the end of that chapter, because based on 1 Peter 3.20, uh, they were continuing in this sexual activity even during the time of the construction uh, of, of the water. So now we come to Genesis chapter 6, and we're told that uh, it came to pass in Genesis 6-1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now the word translating men isn't a word that means males. It's a word that just refers generically to the human race. It is Adam. We're all descendants of Adam from the garden. Uh, and so Adam not only refers to the individual named Adam, but Adam also refers to the human race, all of those male and female who descended from uh, Adam. He is the head of the race. So it came about when mankind or the human race began to multiply upon the face of the, of the land and daughters were born to them. So the emphasis here is going to be upon the daughters. They are the focal point. 
And what happens is you have this group called the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. So see, this is a one-sided event. It is not the daughters of God and the sons of men. It's not a, 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 a joining that occurs between um, the sons of God and men, but the sons of God and women. It is a one-way event from the group called the sons of God. They are taking daughters, females, and the emphasis here is on taking these females as their uh, wives. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, the issue here is what in the world is going on here, and who are the sons of God? Now, it's important to understand that this is a actually a technical term in Hebrew. It's uh, The term is uh, B'nai Ha Elohim, and it refers to the angels as the direct creation of God. It's not referring to human beings. It's not referring to church-age believers. We become children of God. That's true, but it's the different terminology. Israel is described as the son, son of Yahweh, but that's a different term. It's, it's, it's B'nai Yahweh. It's not B'nai or B'nai Yahweh. It's not B'nai Elohim or B'nai Elohim. It is that generic term Elohim that is important here because it's showing that they are uh, this is a direct creation of God. Now, there are three interpretations that are suggested for for sons of God. You probably have not heard uh, at least one of these, the first one. You may have heard the second one, but the view that I take and that most people take, most scholars take, is the third one. There are exceptions. There are good scholars who disagree on this, but I think that they just, sometimes scholars pick a position just because they want to be contrarians. Uh, I, I don't, I can't imagine any evidence based on the New Testament where this can be understood any other way. So the first view is that they're, they're apostates, uh, the, where the term sons of God and daughters of men uh, relate to two classifications of human beings, spiritual and apostate. Actually, this is a view that most of, that if any of you are familiar with another view, this is the one you'd be familiar with. Um, it's the second view. I, I thought these were reversed, but it's the second view that's the view that, that most people don't ever hear. But this view is a view that um, um, tries to say the sons of God are the good guys and believers and the daughters of men are the unbelievers. And so this is when uh, uh, believers intermarry with unbelievers, and this is what causes all the, all the trouble. Now, I, I don't doubt the fact that when believers marry unbelievers, it causes trouble, and that's a fact. But that's not what this is talking about, and we'll see why in a minute. The second view is that these are dynastic rulers, are autocrats. These are uh, ancient tyrants who force themselves upon uh, young, beautiful maidens uh, to marry them. They develop huge harems, and this causes a breakdown in social institutions. Um, I know uh, very uh, uh, several very qualified scholars who take this view. I don't have a clue why they do. They're pretty sharp usually. Otherwise, there's one guy named uh, Monfred Kober who wrote his dissertation at Dallas on this topic, took this view, and um, uh, every now and then he gives a paper, a pre-trib, and, you sh- and sometimes something like this comes up, and uh, people look at me like, where do you get that view? That's the weirdest view in the world. Well, I think it is the weirdest view in the world, but he's not the only one who's taken that view. And then the third view is the angel view, that the sons of God are a subset of fallen angels that um, have left their heaven in order to uh, invade uh, human history in order to take on and transform themselves into with human bodies so that they can uh, take human wives and reproduce in such a way that they're destroying the purity of the human uh, DNA chain and this would then make it impossible for God to send a Savior who would be true humanity. So that's those are the three views. Now let's let's go back and kind of analyze them to uh, un- understand the, the view. Um, the 
the term sons of God and daughters of men clearly identify two different, uh, two different groups. So this group, this first option of the apostates, tries to take the position sons of God stands for either the descendants in the line of Seth or just believers in general. The view that I usually run into is that these are all, the, the Sethites inter, begin to intermarry with the Cainites, the, daughter, the, the daughters of Cain, and that's what causes the problem. Uh, in this view, let me see, I've got some passages I want to look at. In this view, they are, they, they try to treat all these sun term, terms and phrases as as interchangeable and as generic as opposed to technical. So you have other verses that they'll go to, like Ephesians, or excuse me, Exodus 4.22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. But see, this is an adoption text of God adopting Israel as his firstborn. It doesn't use the term B'nai Elohim or even B'nai Yahweh. So it doesn't really fit. Deuteronomy 4.11, Moses is addressing the Israelites as you are children of the Lord your God. You are the sons of Yahweh. It's not B'neha Elohim. As we'll see, that term is used a lot of places, and every time B'neha Elohim is used, it always refers to uh, fallen angels. Uh, Moses said, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head. That's not relevant to what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 32.5, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. Again, it's not using the phrase B'nai Elohim. It is, uh, it's referring to this unique status of Israel as a nation, as a people to God. And then Hosea 1.10 is another verse that comes up. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. And again, this is intersects a new, new term and a new uh, adjective, living God. And it is not the same as B'nai Elohim. The name B'nai Elohim is one we find in passages at Job, which is written during the same early period as the events of Genesis 6. Job, Job is probably the first book written in the uh, in the Bible, written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, probably Job lived about the same time as Abraham, maybe a little bit before, uh, because there's no mention of Israel, there's no mention of Abraham, there's no mention of anything there. So he's prob- Job probably took place between the flood and and Abraham, very early. So Job one six says, "Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them." See, sons of God refers to this group, the angels as a whole, and it includes both holy and uh, fallen angels. Uh, Job 2.1 says, uh, again, another event. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself uh, before the Lord. Again, this refers to all of the angels, not just the fallen angels. Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together, that's clearly a term for describing the angels, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So there's unity in this verse at the time of the laying of the foundation of the earth. All the sons of God are united uh, together. So sons of God refers to angelic beings as a whole, including both fallen and elect. This is our terminology. Well, our time is about up, and I don't want to get, I still have a lot to cover on this, so I'm going to wait until next time, and then we'll come back, go through these interpretations, and examine Genesis 6 before we move on in, in Jude. So we'll look at that in the, in, in the next lesson. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, the fact that all history has a purpose and that from the first uh, sin in the human race that there was a plan of salvation and that Satan is always the enemy of the human race, your enemy, the enemy of salvation, the enemy of Christians, the enemy of Israel, and he has he seeks throughout history to destroy those who are yours. Father, we pray that as we study this, we may come to a greater appreciation for our role in the angelic conflict to be testimonies to the angels, both fallen and elect, 
of your love and your grace and to live out our lives as testimonies of your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.